and we'll have the Bible reading straight off to the prayer. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that, that we can come and we can listen to your word. Father, I pray that as we listen now and as we, as we hear what you have to say to us, that you would give us open hearts and open minds and open ears. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me this morning and bless it to, to our lives. Amen. Is that better? Oh, good. Acts chapter 12, reading most of it. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. When he saw this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him and putting him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, Peter's obviously a dangerous person, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison. He had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate. It opened by itself and they went out. When they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance. A servant girl named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she didn't open it. (laughs) She was so overpowered, she ran back inside without opening it and claimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting, they said, it must be his angel. So, not only isn't he not there, he's dead. Good to have believing prayer. And Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this. And then he left for another place. In the morning, 
there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered they be executed. Nice bloke, Herod. Sorry for those guards there being executed uh, because Peter has been released by God. This morning I want to start by confessing something to you. I want to confess to you that there have been times in the past where I've been in a prayer meeting praying with a group of people and I felt God saying, pray for this, and I've held back and said, well, no, I'm not going to pray for this. I'm not going to risk praying for that. Have you ever felt something like that when, when you feel like you should pray something really big but, but you just, you don't want to risk it. You just don't do it. This morning we're, we're looking in Acts 12 and, and I believe that God wants to challenge us in our prayer lives. I believe God wants to challenge us to be bold in our praying. And I think God also wants to encourage us that His grace is greater than, than our lack of boldness. Last week, uh, uh, chapter 10 of Acts, we left Peter in the, in the town of Caesarea. He'd gone there to take the gospel message to, to Cornelius the centurion. We're going to skip over chapters 10 and 11, the rest of it. Um, in those chapters, we see how the gospel really takes, takes root among the Gentile people. Uh, it goes to Antioch and, and there's the first place where people are called Christians. But today we're, we're back with Peter in the city of Jerusalem. And he's coming back from this, this wonderful, hyped up experience of, of seeing new people coming to know Jesus. Of, of seeing the church expanding beyond the boundary of, boundaries of Israel. And he comes home to Jerusalem to opposition to trial and persecution. King of the day uh, was King Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa, the the nephew, if memory serves me right, of of the King Herod who had colluded with Pilate to have Jesus executed. And this King Herod is a brilliant politician. Very, very clever man. He, He knew how important it was to get the key people in the community on side with him. He worked worked so hard to to make sure that he made friends with the Jewish religious leaders. He he ingratiated himself with them. Because he knew if he had the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin on his side, his job as ruler and governor over the area would be so much easier. And he was a pretty cluey bloke, this, this King Herod. And he realized if he wanted to to really get in the good books of the Jewish leaders, the best way to do it would be to attack the Christian church. I mean, remember, the Jewish leaders are the ones who who signed letters for for Saul to go and and, and grab Christians throughout the land. And praise the Lord, Saul stopped and became Paul and, and spread the gospel instead, but but the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, were, were still keen to, to do away with his church, with these Christians. And if King Herod were to take over the job of destroying the church, well, the Jewish leaders would be in his debt forever. 
And I suspect for King Herod, attacking the church was killing two birds with one stone. Here are Christians claiming to follow a king who is not King Herod. So he's going to get rid of the opposition to him, he's going to make friends with the Jewish leaders, and, and everything is going to be good. But he's a good politician. And he knows that you don't jump in feet first. You, you test the water first to make sure it's going to support you. And we're told in verses 1 and 2 that he goes and he arrests a whole bunch of Christian men, probably women. He arrests them because he wants to mistreat them. He wants to persecute them, probably torture them. And he arrests a few of them just to see if there's going to be a reaction. Just to make sure that it's not going to be something that turns against him. And one of the fish that he catches in his net is the Apostle James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. And Herod has him arrested chops off his head. And he looks around verse 3 and he sees that the people are, are quite happy actually. They're not upset that he's, he's attacking the church. They're, they're quite pleased that, that King Herod is finally doing something about these Christians. And so Herod goes for the big prize. Goes for the head honcher. Arrests Peter. The same Peter who spoke at Pentecost, the rock of the church, takes him into jail and throws him away. You know, when you think about it, Herod's timing of all of this stuff is just so ironic. It's Passover time. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the time when, when they're supposed to be remembering and, and celebrating the fact that God saves His people. But instead of accepting God's offer of salvation, King Herod says, you who bring the message of life, I'm going to throw you into jail. I'm going to destroy this message. I'm going to destroy this church. And the Jewish leaders, they're supposed to be looking forward to God's coming to save and instead they're looking forward to Peter's death. And really there's only one reason why Peter isn't executed immediately. We're told he's arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and Jewish law and custom said that there were to be no trials or executions during that time. So he had to be thrown in jail until the very first day that he could be put on trial and executed. And so we see Peter here, he's sitting in jail. We're talking maximum security jail. Absolutely maximum security. Uh, King Herod is taking no chances that, that Peter's going to escape. He's got these four squads of four soldiers each guarding Peter 24 hours a day. At all times, Peter is shackled to at least two soldiers, one on the left, one on the right. Peter's not going anywhere until he's led out, tried and executed. And I sometimes wonder if, if you and I in Australia in 2010, I wonder whether we can really understand what the church in Acts 12 must have been going through. 
James, one of the apostles, a, a son of thunder, a big man in the church, dead. Who knows how many other Christian men and women taken and tortured and we don't know what happened to them. And now Peter, the leader of the church, in jail, about to be killed. And King Herod, he's throwing everything he's got and he's got all the guards surrounding Peter. Overkill really. I mean, it's not like the Jerusalem church was going to go for a James Bond style rescue mission to, to get Peter out of the jail. I mean, let's, what, what could the church do against King Herod? What could they do against all the power of Rome? For all appearances, there was nothing they could do. Peter was going to die. But there's one thing that they could do in verse 5. They do it. They, they just pray. <laughs> they pray and they pray and they pray and they pray and when they finish praying, they pray some more. Earnestly they pray. Continually they pray. Peter would have been in jail for quite a few days and, and the whole time they're praying for him. They're praying, uh, I don't know, maybe they're praying that that he'd have peace. You know, that the peace of God would be with him. And, and it sounds like it was. The night before his execution, he's sound asleep. Wonderful to have that kind of peace. Perhaps they were praying that when Peter went and stood before King Herod, he'd have the right words to say. Maybe they were even praying that Peter would be released. In fact, I'm pretty sure that they would have been praying that Peter be released. But looking at their reactions when Peter comes to the door, it strikes me that they weren't really expecting anything to happen. Even though that they knew God could release Peter, they didn't think God would do anything. I mean, yes, they, they probably remembered a few chapters ago when, when Peter was in jail and, and, and was miraculously released that time, but surely not this time. I mean, this is a different ball game. James is already dead. Why should Peter be any better off? Verse 5, Peter's in jail. But the church prayed, which is a wonderful thing. But they didn't really expect anything to come of it. Now, I wonder whether the Acts 12 church, I wonder whether they didn't have the same sort of problems that you and I can have when it comes to praying for something or somebody really important. You know, when you know that you have to pray, but, but you don't know what to pray. You don't have a clue what you're supposed to be asking. What, what is God's will in this situation? Have you ever been there? Or maybe we know what we want to ask God. 
But we don't want to press our luck. We don't want to get our hopes too high. We don't want to sound like we're bossing God around. We don't want to be disappointed. Quite a few years ago now, I read a book about a mother whose son was dying. Christian lady, and she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed, and she convinced herself that God was going to heal her son. And about 150 pages into the book, he died. And her faith was just absolutely crushed. And I wonder whether sometimes when we pray to God, we don't sort of try and cushion ourselves against that sort of disappointment. We pray earnestly and fervently, but, but we hold something back. We don't want to risk overcommitting ourselves. Maybe we're not sure that God will actually do something. I'm absolutely positive that, that what happened in verses 1 and 2, the, the arrest of those Christian brothers and the, the murder of James, I'm sure that that must have had an effect on the prayers of the church for Peter. Yes, God can save, but, but you've got that dark cloud of James's death hanging over you. But I, I don't want to paint this church in a bad light. Please don't, please don't take that away. Because the Acts 12 church is such an incredible example to us today. Because despite everything, they came together and they prayed. They were, they were really hoping against hope. But they came together and they prayed. It seemed absolutely impossible that anything would happen to save Peter, but they came together and they prayed earnestly, continuously. You might remember a few months back we, we gave out a, a document about the vision and mission of Comet Bay Baptist Church, the sort of church that, that we want to be. One of the things we said in there was that we wanted to be a a church of prayer. A church where, where prayer is one of the key things that defines us. Uh, we, we had the four uh, key principles of, of God's Word and discipleship and mission and prayer. It is so much my prayer for this fellowship that we would, we would have the kind of prayer life that the Acts 12 church had. That we would learn how to pray earnestly, fervently for issues in our own congregation, for issues in the church around the world, churches facing persecution, missionaries facing execution. I was driving to church this morning and on the radio was hearing about how there's a big furor in Malaysia at the moment against Christians. And yes, there's not much we can do. I can't phone up the Malaysian president and, or prime minister or king or whatever and say, sort it out. But we can pray. 
The Jerusalem church couldn't rescue Peter, but they could pray. Anyways, let's go back to Peter. Uh, one of my favourite comedic passages in the Bible. Here's Peter fast asleep, sleeping like a baby the night before his execution. And I just love verse 7. Have a look at what it says. Chapter 12, verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Peter doesn't wake up. Angel arrives, Peter's snoring away. Verse 7 continues. The angel struck Peter on the side and said, Get up, you. The word therefore for struck is the angel smote Peter. Did some smiting of Peter. Gently, just enough to wake him up. This is so typical of Peter. The angel comes, a messenger from the Lord, and he says, trying to sleep. Even when he does wake up, he's he's only half awake. The the angel has to go and and give him step-by-step instructions what to do. Right, Peter? Get up. Good. Put on your clothes. Good. Put on your shoes. Well done. Now put on your cloak. Okay, now follow me. Peter's still half asleep and he's following this angel. Assuming, verse 9 tells us, that this must be a vision. And they walk out of, of the jail. And they come to the big iron gate leading out to the road. And, and it just swings open automatically. And Peter's still in this, this must be a dream moment. And he's walking through and they get about a street's length away from it and And the angel disappears. (laughs) And Peter finally clicks that this is more than just a dream. I love how Luke puts it in verse 11. Peter comes to himself. Comes to his senses and realizes that, that yes, God has actually rescued him from Herod and from the Jewish people. Can you just imagine Peter there? It's dark, no streetlights. He's in the middle of the road, standing there, saved. And if there was enough light, you could just maybe see his, his, his mouth turn up into a smile. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger as he realizes he has actually been set free. And he gets so excited that, that, that he's got to rush off and tell his, his Christian brothers and sisters what God has done. And, and this is so wonderful. He wants to tell them the good news before he gets out of the city to make sure he's not recaptured. And so he goes in verse 14 to the house of Mary, John Mark's mother. It's a seriously wonderful moment. But the reaction of the church and of Rhoda the maid is old-fashioned slapstick comedy. I I can't help but laugh when I read this passage. Peter knocks at the door. The maid Rhoda comes down to answer it. Peter's there saying, Hello! Hello, it's me! Can I come in? Rhoda gets so excited because she recognizes the voice. She doesn't even think to open the door. She just runs back into the guys and says, Hey, hey, it's Peter outside at the door! And when Rhoda comes in, bubbling over with this wonderfully good news, 
this wonderful, prayer-filled, faith-filled, God-trusting church. This church praying for Peter to be released. Listen to her story and say, yeah, you haven't been at the drinks cabinet again, have you? You're nuts, Rhoda! You're absolutely mad! It's not Peter out there, we're praying for him now. Shush up! And God bless her, Rhoda. Rhoda persists and she says, No, it is. I recognize his voice. It is Peter out there. You know, if this wasn't so funny, it'd be really sad. Because this church was praying so hard for God to do something that they weren't really expecting God to do anything. They'd psyched themselves up for the worst to happen. To the point that they couldn't accept God's best when He when he offered it. <laughs> and again, the, the timing is just so ironic. I mean, this is Passover. The time when you remember how God has time and again saved His people and rescued and saved and, and the church is sitting there saying, God can't have saved Peter. Rhoda is still going, no, no, it is Peter, he's at the door, he wants to come in. And the church turns and they, they try and fobber off with this half-baked suggestion, maybe it's his angel. Whatever that means. Guardian angel, maybe it's his spirit of Peter. I don't know. Because it can't be Peter, they say. got to be something else. Meanwhile, Peter's still at the door going, knock, 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 louder. I'm still here! And eventually, eventually the whole crowd of them probably go to the front door and they, and they open it. You know, getting out of jail was a walk in the park compared to getting into the church that night. Such a wonderfully funny scene. But what I love about it the most is, is just how absolutely real it is. I mean, this was a church full of enough faith to pray, but full of enough doubts to think that nothing would happen. I can imagine myself in that church. I can imagine us as that church. It's funny stuff. They do click eventually, which is good. But, but you know, I think what Luke is trying to do is, is to get us to laugh. At Acts 12 Church, but also to laugh at ourselves. Because our prayer groups can act in exactly the same way. God, do this and God, do that and God, please save that person. Walk out and say, well... Nothing's going to happen, is it? But you know, the good news, the encouraging thing is that God is gracious enough to answer even our prayers when we don't have much faith. 
even when our faith is as tiny as a mustard seed. And God answers beyond our wildest expectations. There's a line in a hymn by Cowper that says, Satan, let me get it right, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And he does. I mean, when we pray, it's not about how faithful we are, it's about how faithful God is. We're speaking to the one who made all things, who has a plan and a purpose for for us and for his church. The one who actually does answer prayer. So maybe we do need to be bolder when we pray. The Bible tells us that the prayer of a righteous man or woman is a powerful thing. Maybe we need to not take a leaf out of the Acts 12 church and and instead believe that God can actually do something when we pray. And yes, sometimes we will be disappointed. Sometimes God will say no. Let's not forget that chapter 12 begins with James' execution. But maybe God will say yes. Maybe we should expect that God can actually do things. It sounds silly to say that, but, but maybe we should actually expect that. This is all around the time of Passover when we remember how God acts to save, when we remember that God is powerful to save, so powerful that He gave His only Son to die for us. And as He hung on the cross, I'm sure the disciples thought, it's hopeless. There's no way good can come out of this. And when God turns around,